1: luxury quality within reach go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order quince.com slash style hello i'm michael Chakraberti
2: and i'm mark watson and welcome back to Mankind, where we chat to a range of brilliant guests about masculinity some of them are men Some of them aren't men, and some of them aren't particularly bothered either way. We're interested in men. Yes, obviously you are. And what makes them tick? Where does masculinity come from? How does it affect us? And how could we be better? We might not get a final answer, but we'll have a bloody good go at it. Won't we, Michael? Oh, we'll do our best. Well, here we are for another week. It's Michael here, and Mark, I'm assuming you're there outside in the ether somewhere? Yes, you can always assume it. I know that you can't see me on this occasion, but, um,
3: you know, we wouldn't play as cruel a trick as to just start this going and leave (laughs) you on your
2: own. I confirm I am here. And once again, I have recorded an episode of the podcast with you. It's been lovely, hasn't it? It's a very nice little routine we have going here. Actually, before we go any further, we should thank another Mark, actually, for joining us on Patreon. Thank you, Mark, for becoming a patron. And how could other people who wanted to become patrons join us? In that eventuality, Michael, I would recommend these supportive-sounding
3: people went to... Patreon.com forward slash Mankind Podcast. That's right, isn't it?
2: That does sound right, yeah. And our social platforms are also a Mankind Podcast if you want to say hello. Um, who do we have this week, Mark? We, this week, had the privilege, actually this was recorded some time ago, but we've spoken
3: to somebody called Ben West. Um, ben is a, a, a mental health advocate and uh, this is kind of a, well, it's a conversation which we're going to put a content warning on because it deals with um, the death by suicide of Ben's brother, which is um, the event which uh, led him to be a mental health advocate, but it does mean it's potentially troubling for some listeners. Yes, indeed,
2: and that topic does come up a couple of times throughout the episodes. If that's something you can't listen to at the moment, for whatever reason, don't worry at all, just save it and come back to it at another time when you feel more ready. But it is also a really funny episode and a fun episode, and a really important one, we think, so we're looking forward to you all listening to it. Enjoy. Yes, do enjoy. I'll let Mark enjoy. I normally start. Yeah, all right. Ready, Michael? Yes, I am. Yes, sir. Thank you. What is called the Sir, then? Did you hear that? It's like, they slipped
3: out. Quite rightly so. I'm considerably older <laughs> than you. a very important figure. Eh? Well, I see a words and sizes on this podcast. <laughs> yes. <Yeah>, that's right. <laughs> oh God, I'm blushing. <laughs> Welcome, cool, everyone. I'm Mark Watson, and in breaking news, Michael Chacoverty has just accidentally called me Sir. So, uh, quite a good day for me so far in terms of my status on this podcast. We'll see how the third person in the podcast today fits into that. It's Ben West. Hi, Ben. Hello, sir. How are you? <laughs> very Good. (laughs) Yeah. Excellent start. Well, thanks for joining us Ben. My pleasure. We like to ask people to introduce themselves as they see themselves, I suppose. It always sounds a bit abrupt this, but who are you?
0: Hello everyone. My name is Ben. I'm a mental health campaigner and I very tragically lost my brother to suicide in 2018 and then from that moment I've kind of dedicated most of my time to campaigning around mental health, trying to improve that conversation, trying to improve diagnosis, treatment and prevention of mental illnesses ranging from everyone from kindergarten all the way through school university and also in the workplace as well so trying to chip away and create change in that space yeah that's pretty much me quite a big job and how are you today i tell you what the sun is shining it's a great day and I'm feeling good. The weather just always makes me feel so nice, and the sun's out. So
3: yeah, I'm good actually, really, really good. Thank you. Interesting to hear this, Ben, because this came up between me and Michael recently. I'm also very emotionally affected by uh, changes in the weather. Yeah, it's interesting, worth mentioning, I think, because mental health does depend on a remarkable number of factors that we're not always aware of. Yeah. And I think this is a good example of how tiny things. Well, it's not that tiny. The weather is all around us, but it's odd, isn't it, how much we're at the mercy of factors that it takes a long time to understand.
2: Yeah. Have you always been like that, Ben?
3: Yeah, my mum always said I was born in May, and I've
0: always been a i a person I always hated
3: winter mm. hated winter I'm the same I was born in February so I presumably came out going oh bloody hell this is shit <laughs> I think I was probably just really
2: grumpy for the first three months of my life I'm the opposite though like I hate being hot really like physically hot not as in like in terms of appealing to other people <laughs> yeah that's a nightmare isn't it <laughs> no I don't think anyone would ever say Michael of all people hates that side of being hot no <laughs> but like I think it's easier to warm up than cool down I'm happy in the winter happy in the autumn but as soon as it starts getting warm I'm miserable
3: I take that point about the heat actually it's just the actual presence of the sun makes such a huge difference to me the sun in the sky yeah is everything to me
2: right so if it was cold but sunny it's fine mm,
3: no, uh, well oh ben i've got two different positions on this <laughs> <laughs> okay, you think about
0: the heat but there's nothing nicer than being really really warm and then getting into bed and there's a cold pillow oh. which you don't have in the summer You've just proven me right, Ben. Well, I do have a cold pillow in the summer. How? Is it in the fridge? You can't do that, to be fair. <laughs> Get a beanbag full of
3: rice in the freezer and put it around your neck. That's lovely. Sometimes this is just a sort of lifestyle tips podcast. <laughs> Sorry. No one expected to be talking about putting a beanbag in the fridge this early. Oh, we'll
0: fill a hot water bottle with water and then put it in the freezer. Uh, that's so nice. Just make sure it doesn't leak because that's been all the morning trying to work out. Is it me? Or-?
3: The funny thing about this is I've been in conversations like this many times in my life where someone says, mm, it's nicer when it's hot, isn't it? And the other person says, no, it isn't. And it's the definition of a subject you'll never get people to agree on because you're <laughs> not just going to suddenly go, oh, you're right, and climb into a freezer. So we, we must agree that
2: different people like different weathers, I guess. Yeah. Well, now we've got a small talk about the weather outdoors we're gonna dive straight in is that all right yeah cut the fun let's interrogate (laughs) we feel good for diving now yeah what do you remember your first experience of masculinity being what's your first memories of it
0: i don't really think i clocked on to the fact that masculinity was a thing i think it was just something that you've got to try and be like one thing i did notice and i notice this every time i do it right i remember in the playground at school there used to be this thing where it was feminine to look at your nails, right, like this. right, Hands spread out. Like bending your fingers over and looking at it. With your palm facing you. Uh Yeah. And the other way around was masculine. And it was so ingrained into me that every time I do it now, I try and think, am I doing it the masculine way or the feminine way? And then try and switch. And it's weird. I think actually I describe masculinity in a sort of similar way. It's not something I can really name, but so much of my behaviour has been affected by little, small inputs that I've been taught throughout my life Mm. and actually i don't think i could sit here and name what masculinity and that sort of stigma around masculinity has done to me but it's there i know it's there and i can see it whenever i look at my nails and i'm like and is that often because i bite my nails Uh, and so i'm always looking for a juicy big one
2: to go (laughs) (laughs) me too sometimes you just spot one and think that's my man today
3: it's
0: so good isn't
2: it do you know what's helped I paint mine every so often and that's what stopped me. When you paint them, you don't want them to be all like clumpy and stubby on the ends. Yeah, mine are terrible. What you said is interesting, Ben, because we have talked often on this podcast about how masculinity is
3: kind of a series of performances, a series of acts that you're not even perhaps conscious of, which add up to something partly because of conditioning, partly because of habit. And because mental health is your particular area of interest, I think it's worth asking what is one of the... Fundamental questions that I'd want to ask someone like you, which is what is it you think about specifically male behaviour that makes mental health a difficult thing to talk about? Why do we see the high levels of bad mental health in men, particularly that we do? Obviously, this is a big question, but it is the focus of a lot of your work as well.
0: I think this is so difficult. I've tackled this in my mind so many times. Why is it that men don't talk? And ugh, it's so difficult, isn't it? I think growing up and looking back on my life, I never cried. I actually made a point, I didn't hug people at school. Because I always was like, oh, no, I'm the tough guy. I'm not going to hug you. I'm not going to do that. And I love a hug. (laughs) I don't know why I was doing that to myself. (laughs) Well, a waste of seven years of hugging. (laughs) It's stuff like that. But I keep thinking back on it was manly and masculine to not show emotional affection to your friends,
2: yeah, right? And just quickly on that one, like, where does that come from? We learn that when we're younger. Mm -hmm. Like, how do we learn that? It must be from outside, but what are those sources for you that you can think of? It must be just in the walls at school (laughs) because it just seeps out. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Because now, looking back
0: on it, you know, because of the experience I've been through and a lot of my friends have been through, we've all very much changed Mm. because of this. And now, I mean, to follow on from that analogy, now we're all hugging each other all the time, like when we see each other and, and we've cried on each other's shoulders. And I think I've seen most of my friends cry more than probably their parents have. Right. And I think that's a massive change. So I don't know what it is. I've got
3: absolutely no idea. A lot of it maybe just is handed down behavior, isn't exactly. it? As you say, it's in the walls. If you go to a school with a relatively male environment, you just sort of know hugging mm. isn't going to be what you do. And you know that because of your older brother or your dad, or not even just because of a kind of unspoken male tradition, so much school behavior which is what forms us, does feel like it's just generations of tradition that mm. it's our job to try and unpick. Yeah. My um, daughter did this joke on me, said, so put your finger in there and it's into the cupped hands and she makes you move it around. And say, like, thank you for cleaning my toilet. And that is a joke that people did in my school playground more than 30 years ago. Yeah. And loads of times they come back from school with stuff like that, which I'm amazed to see with all the change in the world are still things that kids do together. And it makes you think there is this weird unwritten kind of folk tradition of just stuff that you do at school and some of that is harmless stuff like just jokes Mm. but some of it is enormous codes of behavior and that's why it's very interesting to talk about it and Mm. try and break those things down a bit yeah like what
2: would the consequences have been if you would have hugged someone at school or expressed affection or emotion there
0: nothing because my friends were it's really weird i had this kind of opinion and what you've got to remember as well is before sam died before i was 17 i was exactly the person that i don't like now. You know, I was that person in our friend group. I made an effort to not look like I was being affectionate towards them because I wanted to give off this idea that I was masculine. You know, I'd go off to do my um, my army cadets in the evening, and I was like doing all this stuff. What am I trying to prove to people? And you're
2: right. What are the consequences? nothing but do you know what i'm similar in a slightly different way at school i you've got cadets written all over you michael i was in the cadets yeah absolutely no <laughs> I, was, I was a scout
3: barely i don't like the outdoors much i'm aware of that that's why i find it amusing to think of you, you you stopped quite a long way short of military service itself <laughs> as did i well i feel like we built the indoors
2: for a reason why do we keep leaving you know uh, look you're preaching to the converted i do not get as far as scouts even i can't tie a knot now <laughs> I was a beaver and a cub and a scout, but that wasn't where I was going. Of course you were a beaver, carry on. (laughs) It was different things, it was about sexuality, but I'm a basic pop bitch. The music I like to listen to is just mainstream pop and I love it, but at school, that would sort of betray me to an extent. So I forced myself into loving like, emo music, like heavy metal, like System of a Down, like My Chemical Romance. And like, I still love them to an extent now, but you kind of force yourself to do things. Mm. It's kind of like you're resisting the side of yourself, even though no one's telling you to do it. And I wonder whether that's like a fundamental human thing Mm. rather than just subscribe to masculinity. Because I imagine there'll be women and non-binary people who have done similar things to just try and limit themselves, you know? I think people do. People put masks on. We're very, very Mm. good at putting up masks
0: and pretending to be someone that we think will fit in or be looked at a certain way. You know, we're human beings who want to impress everyone else. But also this idea of masculinity and at the end of the day, you know, not wanting to hug people is not actually very dangerous. It's not going to really affect me massively. But the same effect that does that made me never talk to my friends about how I was doing, made me pretend I was always okay. But then I very, very quickly realised when I lost Sam, there was no way that i could possibly do this on my own and pretend like i was okay Mm. and had i not had friends that realized i was at the tipping point and they had to intervene i don't know where i'd be but the statistics don't look very good for people that have gone through what i went through
3: absolutely and is this the focus of some of your activism now i've been looking at your campaign to get universities graded on mental health support for example do you feel that there needs to be actual institutional change in the way we talk rather than just you know there's loads of campaigns about like, blokes, go for a pint, put an arm around a mate. There's a lot of messaging like that. But I haven't seen many people do what you do, which is try to hold actual institutions to account on mental health. Yeah. I don't want to come across
0: like I'm doing down anyone that's in this space trying to help. Mm. But there is two conversations within mental health. There is a pretty conversation and an ugly conversation.
3: I believe you. I, I agree entirely.
0: The pretty conversation is that we need to talk about mental health. That's where all the companies have that view. That's their PR campaigns. That's ITV, Great Britain Talking. You know, talk about your mental health. It's a very pretty conversation. What's not pretty is there's an 18-month waiting list for CAMS. What's not pretty is there's a massive chronic underfunding of mental health research in the UK. What's not pretty is that people are dying on their own and not accessing services. So many different things. Yes, it's absolutely important that we talk, but oh my God, there's so much going on that we need to talk about that's not just that. Mm. I think too many people are sort of, misled to believe that talking alone is the solution to this, whereas actually it's not. As soon as you get into this space and look more deeply, you realise that encouraging people to talk about their problems is only part of this. And actually, you know, when we say talk about your mental health, a lot of the time that's directed to people that are struggling, right? And talking is an incredibly important thing that we need to do. But let's stop telling people that are struggling to talk about their mental health, because they know to do that. Instead, When we say talk about your mental health, we're not talking about the person that's struggling. We're talking to everyone that's not. Because if we want to normalise mental health... We want everyone talking about mental health. And too many times you sit in a room and you're like, let's normalise mental health and everyone goes silent and no one says anything. You're like, that's exactly why we haven't made massive progress on this because it's all been directed at the people that are struggling rather than looking elsewhere. That's massively fueled what I do, try and change the opinion.
3: I thought it was a great couple of minutes because I think about this every year when these campaigns come around. I'm often asked to be involved with them. In fact, I, I do always involve myself in them. But every time, you post as part of mental health campaign you will see people rightly saying okay you got me I'm ready to talk about mental health it's just where are the resources and like you say what do I do about the waiting list how do I physically get anywhere near being able to talk about it and I completely agree with you it's to do with this pretty versus ugly thing it's quite easy to put a poster up at a train station with two guys having a beer going there you go you'll be alright it's much more difficult to look at the infrastructure which supports mental health campaigning because at the end of the day Mm. you can talk to a mate as much as you want but that is a bit like saying, if you've got a serious illness, just take strepsoles and stuff. It's useful to have medication, but, you know, much more useful to look at the actual root cause of the thing. The root cause isn't going away.
2: The mate needs to be equipped to then help that person. And that's the issue there. You'd written somewhere, I believe Sam was diagnosed with depression yeah. and you were just like, <laughs> And that's the problem is that people who are told that this person has depression or something like that don't necessarily know what to do or how to help or where to go.
3: I mean, basically, as Ben says, it needs to be normalized because mental health is a problem like any other problem. No societal problem goes away just because we talk about it. Mm. Talking about it is just the first step. And there's no doubt a sort of midnight conversation to a mate when you're desperate could change everything. But until we have a country that's organized along lines where everyone that needs actual funding and support can get it, it's hard to see how we can make a real dent in those statistics. Yeah. yeah. I sometimes
0: like to think of it as sort of, you've got heart disease and mental illness is sort of like brain disease. I sort of equate the two, right? So heart disease, teaching young kids to eat healthily and go for run exercise, that's really good at preventing heart disease. In the same way that talking is really good at preventing brain disease. Mm. But when you get it, you don't just eat healthily out of heart disease, right? You need treatment. And at the moment, people are talking. People are going to their GP. They're being turned away, being put on wait lists,
3: and they're dying. Exactly. Once you've got the heart disease, you can't just have loads of lettuce, can you? Exactly. You've got that's to it. actually intervene. Precisely. And that sort of feels like what the tone of a fair bit of mental health talk is. And no
0: one at the top, no one at the street is clocking that they're trying to talk their way out of actual physical illnesses. You know, that's just ridiculous. No one can possibly expect people to sit there in a pub over a pint and be like, I've got depression. Oh, this chat made me feel so much better. I've cured it. Mm. No, no, no. We cure it with treatment. And also let's not forget that we've turned the dial on heart disease. We've turned the dial on cancer through research. When you're medicated for your mental illness, it's trial and error still. Mm. If you go to a doctor and they prescribe you with pills, They are going, try this and we'll see what happens. Some people will react well. Some people react badly. Some people it won't work at all. Such a whole host of different reactions to it. And we don't know why. We have no idea. So we need proper research. And people need to peel the skin away from this whole issue and actually look at what's going on beneath this pretty conversation. Politics and leaders are actually obsessed with this pretty conversation.
3: Again, I do agree with you about the nitty gritty of research. Quite often you'll be asked to be, you know, a mental health ambassador. I've seen other people like me doing it. And again, it's a lovely idea what it means is a, a guy sticking his face on social media saying it's okay to feel down yeah. but ambassadorial work means absolutely nothing compared with scientific work
2: so what can we do what is the nitty-gritty yeah right wow okay you're gonna fix it now yeah what do you
3: want Ben? Oh God.
2: So... <laughs> <laughs> i mean right. Well,
0: firstly not teaching four-year-olds in school about emotional literacy and then expecting them later on in life to deal with stress and deal with pressure and to deal with mental illness is like not teaching a four-year-old how to read And then one day when they're 24, being like, Charles Dickens, have a read,
3: see what you think. Yeah, I agree. Dickens should start at four. (laughs) But it's
0: true though, right? We're not teaching young people about mental health. How can we possibly expect anyone to understand it? (laughs) Yeah. A person messaged me the other day and they said it was ridiculous. Their school said they'd reached thick form so they were ready for the conversation about mental health. I was like, What 18 years overdue the conversation. I mean that's an adult.
2: They could be in the army.
0: They could. Yeah, they can vote. That's someone that's about to go out in the world. Yeah. And a massive proportion of those people have already developed mental health conditions. Mm. We need to be teaching it from as soon as young people enter school. Four years old. I've got a friend of mine that's writing children's books about mental health. We all remember like Biff and Chip back in school. Well, Chip one day sad, and Biff asks if Chip's okay, and then Chip goes to the doctor, and it's kind of introducing these ideas and these mm. coping mechanisms to young people. You know, screw maths. I don't care about maths. <laughs> at last, someone says it. <laughs> I can learn that later. But we have to live with thoughts every millisecond of every single day. We are our thoughts and our brain. How can we not learn about that?
3: I do agree. It's pretty odd that at the age of 13, 14, you are able to calculate the circumference of a circle. Yeah or draw a quadratic graph or something but you've had very few conversations in your life about how your brain works and why. I can tell you how
2: glacial landscapes have been formed but I can't tell you how I can make myself feel a bit happier today.
3: Actually (laughs) you could argue physical geography is an even better example than maths really. Would you rather know what a water basin is or know how to look after your brain? (laughs) Uh, Oh, Oxbow Lake, love that. The old Oxbow Lake.
2: (laughs) Oh, Do you know what? That was quite thrilling actually. I quite enjoyed an Oxbow Lake. That was one of the one things I liked. It's
3: nice to know how fossils come to be but again that could probably wait until you've been given the <laughs> tools to deal with your brain yeah and
0: every day we see it. pressure is just building and building because competition is just fueled mm. and i think actually going back to sort of masculinity masculinity is massively a competitive thing it's all about competition it's about how can i be better than this person how can i can be more manly than this person right? right and so schools have been designed to be ultra competitive all of the schools i've been to i mean even like when i was four years old you do a running race and you get rewarded with things you're competing against each other and so as soon as you get to this school and you're competing for grades and the pressures in increased and you don't know how to cope. That's why so many people struggle with exam stress. Yeah. Um, we're talking mental illness struggle with exam
3: stress. and We have no idea how to cope. Again, to back up what you're saying about how early school becomes competitive, my kids had their sports day last week and several kids cheated in the space hopper race no. instead of boinging. They were just sort of running on the space hoppers. That's the fear of failure. <laughs> um, These kids are seven. They shouldn't be thinking in those terms. It's awful. Seven-year-olds cheat. <laughs> I do think you're right, Ben. I also think there's a wider conversation. I've thought a lot that our traditional modes of education don't cheat you. Loads of stuff. It's not limited to mental health. You never learn about mortgages or tax. Oh God! Yeah. Many of the fundamentals of actually living as a human are totally passed over, I think. Not so much now, maybe. There's slightly more kind of personal and life skills focus. But we seem to have these cornerstones of traditional education, which are so heavily academic and then these massive gaps where the reality of personhood could actually be.
2: Yeah, and it sounds like you had a bit of a crash course in having to kind of explore mental health. Can you talk to us about that time and how did you process that and how did you realise in such a short space of time how important mental health was?
0: Yeah, I mean, crash course is a great way of putting it, actually. Like a crash. It was hard and I think I very much went to primitive instinctive brain setting right when i opened that door because i unfortunately had the experience of finding sam i opened that door and my brain just went to monkey It, it went back to primitive settings and to the point where it had disconnected so much between logical and irrational i was in this situation my brain had disconnected so much that i was actually laughing and making a joke with the 999 call handler whilst i was doing cpr because my brain was just not comprehending what was going on? Right. So I had a factory reset um, at that point. When you experience something like that, it takes a very, very long time for your emotions to rebalance. And it was the most tumultuous, up and down thing I've ever. It was horrible. Not only did I have to go through the trauma and that sort of factory reset of my brain, but also the grief. You know, it was this awful, toxic cocktail of everything that could possibly go wrong going wrong. And I was very, very, very fortunate, like I said that I had an amazing group of friends, amazing group. They just were so good at noticing things about me and getting me to feel comfortable again. But looking back on it, it was the most bizarre time. I mean, the following day... After losing Sam, it was less than 24 hours. I got changed and went back to school. My God. I just turned up at school and just sat in my lessons. I walked through the playground and started laughing with people and joking. Because I was just in such a weird mindset. I was so desperate for normality. Mm -hmm. But you're right. It was a bit of a crash course in emotions because I had to sort of find my way into actually helping myself feel better. So that's one of the reasons the campaigning came about, actually, because I'm quite a positive person. I don't like feeling sad. So I was desperate to find something positive just to inject into life. Mm. And for me at the time, I either had grief or A-levels and... (laughs) I wasn't doing levels. It's not a great choice, is it really? Yeah. So we organised this big walk that we were going to do. I got everyone to dress in bright pink camo t-shirts and it was just going to be the most fun, happy, smiley event all about mental health, which to me at the time, you know, you do a Google about mental health, it was all thunderclouds and darkness. People use thunderclouds an awful lot. Yeah, which I don't like at all. It's an overworked metaphor. Exactly. But also for me, it was just that injection of positivity that I needed. And you see actually a lot of the time with people that go through difficult, times it's quite common it's called sublimation where you try and use that experience to create something positive and that for me in the initial part was a great defense mechanism against the stuff that was going on mm. over the years and it has taken me three years to actually sort of get to a point where i'm recovering from going through that you know i've started counseling a few months ago which is just the most incredible thing it's like going for a brain massage once a week it's
3: lovely
2: (laughs) i found myself trying to impress my counselor trying to like show off i was like please love me that's so like (laughs) your personality michael so on brand
3: (laughs) how do you think i did
0: (laughs) i was so anxious about doing it because knowing what i was going to have to speak about is terrifying (laughs) absolutely terrifying Mm. so knowing that they were going to go in and look at all of that was a bit scary even now i've been going for six months which is amazing it's still before the session i'm like oh no what are we gonna do yeah it's like taking out a splinter every time but it is amazing and it's taught me so much about mindfulness and mental health and actually looking after myself the biggest thing i've learned though over the last three years and this is actually something my counselor told me that sticks with me every single time she asked me one day she was like ben what are you doing to look after your mental health And I was like, oh, you know, I felt bad this morning. I went for a run. You know, I cooked lunch, went to see friends. And she was just like, stop, 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 stop. We're human beings, not human doings. And sometimes the best thing you can do is actually just be. And I was like, wow, okay. Hmm. This is so true. Sometimes the best thing you can do is actually just sit there with your emotions. Because my response has always been bad emotion, push it away, get it as far away from me as possible, fill my time, distract myself from it. And actually that was so transformational to be like, the stuff you're doing is actually not helping you because it's just distracting you. Yeah. And so that was really... Really
3: massive. I do think this is very worthwhile and useful for anyone to hear who might have mental health issues, which is an enormous number of people. Of course, I think that I'm similar to what you're talking about. I think I tend to just put loads of tasks in the way of my thoughts rather than actually addressing those thoughts. And I do think it's interesting what you said as well, that initially that kind of gung-ho positive approach, like we're going for a walk, we've got a pink on, all that is, you know, people will often tell you including people who should know better, that getting yourself into a happier state is just a matter of sort of willing yourself there. You know, like it's a choice to be happier. stuff. And I think it sounds like what you're saying is it was a choice for a bit to drag yourself into a more upbeat frame of mind, but you can't do that forever. In the end, you have to address what's actually there.
0: Yeah, and also this fear, I mean like actual fear of having to deal with it because from day one, people that were well-meaning, in fairness, always told me, oh, you've got to deal with this. You know, Mm. make sure you deal with this. Make sure you talk about it because it will, you know, catch up with you. And then obviously people were talking to me about trauma therapy and PTSD. And then my GP prescribed me with medication. I was like, oh no. It made me terrified. Mm. Because every time I tried to push this away, I started to think, is all just going to come out and it's not really like that grief's an animal and it's like having a pet it's just something that's living with you right and you've got to kind of feed it nurture it and slowly it will make friends with you and it's not something that ever goes away but you can sort of learn to live with it and improve and and we talk about this grief cycle and the, the sort of waves of grief and you
2: do get to the point where you are okay with it. The way it gets smaller, right? You said that your friends, they were the people who helped pull you through. What did they do?
0: Oh, they were just so good. So I mean, you get the people that buy you food and flowers when you're home. And then you get the people that phone you at like nine at night and be like, do you want to go for a walk? When I knew they were amazing was when I literally just met them. And neither of us said anything and I felt better. It's very difficult to understand what you're going through. They were just there day and night just to listen to me. Mm. And also they'd notice things. I did not eat anything for a good few days. I couldn't stomach anything. I was sick. They took me to Wagamama's and they just knew that that was going to be an enjoyable thing. Take my mind off it and have something to eat. And I had a bowl of ramen and I absolutely guarantee it would be the nicest thing I've ever eaten in my entire life. Well, maybe you haven't had the katsu then, but carry on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they were just unbelievable, giving me that space. And as someone that never even hugged anyone, mm. and there's me sitting in the back of my car just crying on my friend. It was a really amazing moment for me.
2: I mean, you say the ramen was the best food you've ever had in your life. What was the first hug like with one of your friends? That must have been a nice moment. I had, luck like, actually hug people before. <laughs> <laughs> but like a proper one. It was very, very difficult because it's not friendly hug. No.
0: It's a I'm damaged hug where i was falling apart actually no that's a lie i wasn't falling apart i was in pieces and so it wasn't really a hug that was like oh hello how are you doing it was a hold me up
3: we often ask about men that you admire men who have been role models who seem like good examples of masculinity to you. and but in a way you've sort of answered the question often people bring up either their parents or famous people that they looked up to it seems as if some of the most important male figures in your life have only come onto the landscape or at least you've only identified with them in that way you know, in the past two or three years because of what you've been through. And it's good to hear. We don't hear that many examples of really successful male friendship talked about on this podcast. Yeah,
0: It's difficult, isn't it? Because actually the masculinity talk, I mean, look, I didn't want to hug people. You know, that's the sort of impact my life had on me. You didn't have a hugging mentor, clearly. <laughs> no, exactly. But yeah, you're right. I mean, what changed me from that opinion of it's not okay to cry, it's not okay to hug people, was the fact that my friends, did that Mm. I mean they really went out their way to make me feel comfortable being emotional to them I think after that I just realized what absolute load of rubbish this whole masculinity thing is this idea that that I taught myself not to cry and not to hug because this has made me feel better yeah they've absolutely inspired me to be more myself and be more open with people I'm lucky that I meet so many people every day that just sort of their little micro inspirations i've had such an incredible mixture of experiences over the last three years that has taught me so much about you know people and men and masculinity and everything so many people have had that input into my life that's gone yeah it's okay to hug people Ben. Actually, it's almost
2: weirder to not have people. If we meet you in person, we're both going to smother you. (laughs) (laughs) Make up for 18 years. I think it's a nice way to live, though, providing yourself with space to receive those sort of micro-inspirations from other people. I have anxiety and depression, which are famously introverted issues. And Mm. sometimes it's quite hard to look outside of yourself and see other things. So I think that's a really important and valuable
3: thing. I agree with you, but I was briefly distracted there because I'm in a hotel and a large man with a beard suddenly wandered in to try and clean the room. So I've been thinking about masculinity from a different angle for the past couple of minutes. I nearly sprang up and hugged the life out of him, yeah. I don't think he expected to see a podcast in progress from the look on his face. I'm sure he's seen worse, Mark. I was going to say, if you clean hotel rooms, you've seen far worse things than people discussing male sensitivities. Do you also campaign for more training for teachers and people in education? Is that another aspect of what you do? Yeah,
0: absolutely. So after the walk we did the first year, we realised that there was a massive hole in this. And then I launched a petition to make teacher training have mental health as part of it. Because at that point, if you went through teacher training, they did no point mention mental health, which I was like okay, that doesn't make sense. You know, you're trained in how to use an EpiPen in case someone eats a nut and it goes into anaphylactic shock. But you're not trained in what mental health means and how you can see that students about to take their own life or self-harm. So that was
2: my sort of first campaign. So you mentioned how we can sort of raise more awareness about mental health from a very young age. What other things could there be, do you think, that we could do to physically help people? Yes, I'll say my physically help people, mentally, if that sentence follows. Yeah,
3: physically as in practically, as in making an actual palpable difference.
2: You got your point across, yeah.
3: I mean,
0: firstly... Like we said before about this sort of heart disease analogy, you can eat healthily, but when you do get it, you need help. At the moment, you see so many people that are talking and then not being given the help. And we need far more clinical support for people that are struggling because Helpline's great, don't get me wrong, but it's not a clinical solution. It's not going to help you in the long run. It's again more of a sticking plaster, isn't it? It's a temporary thing. It's a prevention thing. We are very, very good, I think, at looking at prevention for mental health but we don't see the connection between prevention and treatment. And the treatment for mental health conditions is absolutely appalling for the most part. Some we're quite good at treating. You know, from my knowledge, I think we're very, very good at treating psychosis because we've got a good understanding of that to an extent. But depression, anxiety, PTSD, these are things that still have massive misunderstandings. So support. I know that there was a campaign a while ago to make... All schools in the country have access to counselling services. So schools Mm. could then signpost not to CAMS or to the mental health service, but actually there was a base that they could go to. Amazing. Because then if a kid has this problem, we don't just go... Is Fred. He can talk to you on Wednesday. We actually go, this person can actually give you clinical care because that's what we need. Just tell us what CAMS refers to, by the way. CAMS is the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service. I think they've changed the name to SIMPHS. No idea why. Maybe it's a rebrand because they're so terrible. <laughs> no, because CAMS <laughs> sounds a bit creepy. <laughs> so CAMS is the child and adolescent side of the mental health service. I think you get it until you're 17/18 where you go to AMHS, which is the Adult Mental Health Service. CAMS is awful. There are people inside CAMS that are fantastic. You know, we've got to pay tribute to the fact that there are some incredible people working in these services. But they don't have the resources to actually do anything with their incredible goodwill. They don't. So what we have with CAMS is massive waiting lists for really terrible quality of care. It's very much a sort of, oh, you're feeling suicidal. We'll see you next Wednesday. All right. Mm. Have a nice week. Run a bath or something, which is just not okay. Mm. which is why we need more research. We need to understand this better. We need more funding to the mental health service. You know, there is 12 billion pounds a year going into mental health in the UK. 12 billion pounds. That's a huge amount of money. Where's it going? We need an actual inquiry into the mental health service in the UK because it's killing people. Mm. The fact that people don't get access to care is killing people. So that, in my mind, would condone an inquiry. As you say, £12 billion is a lot, isn't it? Exactly. When 12 services is underfunded. No, it's not. £12 billion pounds is a huge amount of money. Mm. It's that the money's not being deployed properly, not that the money doesn't exist. Yeah. We have to look at how we're spending that money. Mm. That's sort of an area that I really think that we should have more of a microscope on that I don't think gets
2: enough attention because it's
0: not a pretty conversation
2: and i think over the last 12 18 months the pandemic has had a disastrous impact on people's mental health and i think yeah. speaking from experience i mean i went to therapy a couple of years ago and i ran out of sessions because there wasn't enough funding mm. for them which is a bit awful like some trauma oh so sorry that's actually the end <laughs> Don't <ever see>. yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awful. i worry for the coming years because people who've been so affected by this traumatic year don't necessarily know where to go now mm. You know. Absolutely. We've sacrificed so much this year.
0: And the buzzword of this year has been the vulnerable. And we've absolutely had to make sacrifices to protect those vulnerable individuals. I categorically believe that we've failed to even recognise that there was another category of people that were vulnerable. Right. And we've done nothing to protect those vulnerable people. And they're young people. Mm-hmm. There were so many vulnerable young people that have been ignored in this pandemic response, because they didn't recognise that actually the response to COVID-19 in itself gave birth to a whole new group of vulnerable people. Mm. I really fear for those young people that have missed a year and a half of their life, that are going through their development stage. You know, people in school, mid-teens, they're rewiring their brain they're developing as a person and they've had a chunk of time just taken out they've had to isolate now what's that going to do long term i've had to have conversations with far too many friends this year that have lost their friends to suicide in halls of residence that have been isolating we forgot about a group of vulnerable people. And unfortunately, that's killed people.
3: And we need to focus on that now, obviously, because with a bit of luck, the physical damage wrought by the pandemic is starting to tail off. And we now live in a world where the psychological fallout of this bizarre time is only just starting to be understood, presumably. No one's ever lived through anything like this before and it stands to reason that there's going to be a gigantic psychic price to
2: pay for that which as you say it's quite easy not to think about. Mm. I know we talked a lot about how those people who have mental health conditions aren't really the ones that need to be spoken to because they know they've got those conditions for the most part but if you had a message to the friends or the family or loved ones of those people what would you say to them? Mm. It's a difficult question isn't it? Yeah I think first of all
0: vulnerability is infectious And I've always said this, if you want someone to feel comfortable having a conversation about mental health, the best way you can do that is actually talking about your own mental health first. Be vulnerable first. I saw that firsthand. I lost Sam. I stood up in front of the entire school. I did a speech on his memorial service. I put my heart on my sleeve and I just said it all and after that I had hundreds literally hundreds of people message me and they had the confidence to actually have that conversation with me because they trusted me I love when I speak to companies because I do some work with corporate people now
2: including the famous Wagamamas I have seen in
0: fairness Wagamama are absolutely fantastic at this not just because I'm working with them but they are actually an incredible team
3: for mental health oh, you can put Wagamama in the discussion as much as you. I bloody love Wagamama <laughs> none of us is being paid to say this Michael and I will back you up all the way on this so hungry thinking about it I really am and what
0: I do for a <laughs> I see so many times where companies put out this email from corporate being like, it's mental health awareness week, talk about it. Yeah. And you're like, no, no, no. You know what something that would actually do something would be? If you have got your line manager or your big boss to come in and be like, my sister's just died, my mum's just died, and I feel awful, mm. and actually just start talking about their own mental health, that would have such a massive impact. So, what I say to people that are struggling or know someone that is, is actually, we all need to talk about mental health, not the people that are actually suffering. They should, in theory, be the last person that talks about it. Normalise the conversation. That doesn't mean posting something on Instagram. That means actually having the conversation. You know, If someone asks you how you are, how's your mental health? That's how we normalise it, right? Totally. Also, those little duck gyoza with sort
3: of a plum sauce. Like, oh, yeah. I'm about crispy squid, I can't lie. It's a no from me, squid. But you can see the point. There's something for everyone in Wagamama, basically. We can't speak highly enough of Wagamama.
2: And if they would like to sponsor us, do reach out. I suppose that's where we're going with this, yeah. <laughs> Another sponsor that I've been angling for since the beginning of this whole process has been Build-A-Bear Workshops, ah, yeah. which brings us nicely into our final question, which is about building men from scratch. And into them, you are building three qualities to help them exist and thrive in this world in which we live what three qualities would you build? That's just a funny story on the builder
0: bear thing. You know, on my Instagram, sometimes I do these question stickers and we do the, the Church of Ben and I dress up as a
2: priest. I love the Church of Ben. It's a wonderful yeah. occasion when it happens. Can you just quickly explain to people who might not know what the Church of Ben is?
0: I don't know how it started, to be honest with you, but I found this filter on Instagram, the dresser as a priest. And I thought it wouldn't be funny if we did like confession <laughs> and I was a priest. <laughs> and I did one the other day about worst drunk stories. Priest Ben was there consulting. And someone said that their worst drunk story was actually waking up, hungover, inside a builder bear
2: Not in the bear itself. They were in the shop. <laughs> can you imagine waking up and all you can see is the inside of a bear? That's like a horror film, yeah. He <laughs> <Just laughs> goes, I love you. That's where that voice comes from, actually. It's just drunk people who've ended up inside builder bears <laughs> <laughs> But um,
0: it's difficult to think about this now. Three <laughs> qualities in a man, right. So, I mean, firstly, it's kind of my buzzword for today, but I think vulnerability... Yeah is the most important thing that we need to sort of build into men. To a certain extent as well, I think having sympathy, and I know that sounds a bit harsh, because it's like saying we're not sympathetic, but I think there is this massive lack of sympathy and empathy in men, and this sort of glorification of not having sympathy. Mm. I see it so much like people just joke about it, not because it's funny, but because they want to look like they're not empathetic. Mm. And actually, empathy is a fantastic trait to have. Yeah. The last one I think would be, Difficult to say it in one word, but just that confidence to actually reach out to that friend and that confidence to actually see something and step in. And I think so many people now are really scared of having that conversation because it's a horrible conversation to have. And I think actually, if we had more people that had the confidence within themselves to go, something's not okay, what's going on, mate? Like we say, you know, the most important people that need to talk about mental health are the other people. So if you're vulnerable, empathetic, And I guess both of those link together sort of create that person that would then
3: go and reach out to people. Yeah, it's a sort of emotional generosity or boldness or something like that.
2: Emotional generosity, that was nice, Mark. That was nice. Thank
3: you, Michael. Thank you both.
2: You can call me Sir again, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I think that a lot of fear comes from people who don't have mental health conditions, but the fear is that they might say something Mm. that you then just don't know what to do with. But I think it's okay to say, I don't know what to do, but I'm here anyway. We can sit here quietly. You don't have to have the answers to help someone, I think is what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, It's terrifying, though. I talk about this Mm. every day. I still find those conversations difficult. I've got a couple of friends I've had to do it for over the last few months. It's not a nice conversation to have. And you really don't want to have the conversation because having that conversation admits that there's something wrong. Yeah. The biggest thing I'd say, though, is people really struggle with believing that they are a rescuer mm. and talking about mental health is not rescuing if you want to help someone you know with a mental health condition or that is obviously struggling the number one best thing that you can do is be whoever you ask that person be a friend mm. be a brother be available basically and just listen to them and you don't have to come up with suggestions but the best thing that you can say if you do need to say something is open-ended questions how does that make you feel give them the sort of encouragement to just keep delving inside and having a look and just listen to them and not try and rescue because I think so many people go into that situation like geared up Mm -hmm. I'll carry on my shoulder let's go to A&E that's not the best thing you can do. And then also have a look at where you can signpost them. There's some great services, Shout 85258, services that you can connect them with a person that knows more about it than you do. You can offer to take them to the GP, come with you or sit in the waiting room. Those are some things that you can suggest, but there's,
3: there's loads of information about sort of signposting online. And where can people find you online, Ben? Because I think a lot of people will want to hear more.
2: Yeah, your platforms are really great for all this stuff. Where
3: am I online? Yeah, how do people see you dressed as a priest to catch the chase?
2: <laughs> so I am on Instagram. As- at I am Ben West. I think it's the same on Twitter. It's the same on Facebook. And the priest stuff happens like once a month, but when it happens, oh, it's golden content. People are running out of professions now, though. Are they? We need more drunk opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming and chatting to us. I say coming and chatting to us. We're all still in our homes. But thank you for joining us. Cheers, guys. Ben West, thank you very much. Thanks, sir. <laughs> thank you, sir.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> that was Ben West a very courageous sounds um, patronising to say young man but he's quite a lot younger than me and he, he definitely is uh, an inspirational character I think it's fair yeah to say. I
2: really enjoyed the conversation and it was um, I think we, like we both learned a lot and it, felt me, it left me kind of wanting to do more so I hope you all feel a bit energised by that and um, it's a really important topic that I think we haven't addressed before, so I really enjoyed that for us.
3: And now, speaking of energy, you're about to do something uh, incredible <laughs> in the field of stamina, aren't you, Mark? Well,
2: yeah, Well, thank you for us saying so, Mark. <laughs> I am, I'm intending on running the London Marathon this Sunday, which is quite nerve-wracking. I'm running it for um, for Alzheimer's Society. Um, my granddad passed away, um, and he had Alzheimer's uh, a wee while ago now, um, and I'm hoping to raise £6,000. I've got... I've managed to raise about five thousand, five point six thousand, I think. Um, but I've got a uh, Just Giving page on my Twitter and things like that. So if you could uh, sponsor me, that would be lovely. But if not, um, just go to the Alzheimer's uh, Society page and become a dementia friend. That's a lovely thing you can do to support me as I weep my way through London streets uh, for four and a half hours.
3: Perhaps people can also cross their fingers, think of you, pray, whatever their kind of favoured method of yes. sending good vibes is.
2: Thoughts, prayers and good vibes would be lovely, uh, actually. I'd really enjoy that. <laughs> what are you doing? this week mark
3: me well for a start the main thing sort of the main difference between me and you is that i have decided not to run 26 miles in one go this week as <laughs> most weeks as all but one weeks of my life so far in fact uh, what i am doing michael is continuing sort of uh, in a way nature's marathon my plod around the country touring <laughs> uh, so you know i suppose it behooves me to say again that if people are interested in watching me do stand up there are lots of tour dates basically a bit of a bit of a, a bit of spell of googling will reveal a chance to sponsor you and a chance to watch me on stage.
2: Nature's Marathon is also the title of your next tour, is that right? Um, the actual tour
3: covers an awful lot more than twenty-six <laughs> miles. I need hardly... If I could do a whole tour in that sort of distance, I'd be a delighted man. But as it is,
4: <laughs> um,
3: I continue the plot. Although, except I've really enjoyed... Uh, i actually met a couple of fans of this podcast um, the other week. I said, please make yourself known, and someone did do that uh, in How Halifax. Lovely. Which was really nice, yeah. So please do keep coming, and saying hello
2: after the show. Wonderful, yes. And actually, talking of um, our lovely friends, um, no, that's a bad segue. So I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to jump straight into it. Uh, next week we have Owen Jones. <laughs> yes,
3: Owen Jones will be known to many listeners as a, uh, a journalist, um, big controversial figure on Twitter, broadcaster. Um, noted left-wing commentator and wind-up of quite a lot of uh, angry people on social media. Mm.
2: His Twitter also calls him a uh, geriatric millennial, which I think is quite a nice term. Um, I don't, quite, don't fully know what it means, but I'm assuming it was perhaps an insult that had been thrown at him? Yeah, pr-
3: presumably it means he's right on the cusp of not quite qualifying as a millennial. What he is, of course, is a very fresh face. He's very young-looking, so he does get quite a lot of... Uh, Grief for that, but he gets a lot of stick for all sorts of things. On he's one of the most contentious figures we've ever interviewed, even though absolutely lovely, really. But there you go,
2: people are funny, aren't they? I mean, his Twitter, his Twitter header calls him a power bottom, an evil power bottom sex dwarf. I'm on a Twitter now; it's quite exciting. <laughs> it's a really lovely episode, and we know you'll all really enjoy it. So we'll see you next week when hopefully my legs um, have survived. Yep, good luck with your marathon, Michael. Remember to sponsor Michael; he's going to cry. <laughs> he definitely will cry. <laughs>